Good morning, church. As the kids are making their way to their classes, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the second to the last chapter in your Bible. Revelation chapter 21. As you turn there, I have a rhetorical question. What is the gospel? We talk in here a lot about the gospel. We often say that we can summarize the gospel with four words, God, man, Christ, response. A holy God created the heavens and the earth, and mankind was the pinnacle of his creation. But man rebelled against God and sinned against God and was forever and irreparably stained with that sin, and sin and death entered the world. But then God made a way for sinful man to be reconciled back to himself. And that way was his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life and died in the place of sinners. But we must respond to that good news. And the Bible says that the only saving response is repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ alone. God, man, Christ response. That is the gospel. But sometimes we also summarize the gospel with four other words. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was all good, including mankind and creation itself. And then the fall was man's rebellion against God. And both mankind and creation itself were irreparably stained with the sin of man and doomed to an eternity apart from him. But God had a plan of redemption to redeem sinners. And his plan was to send his son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that we couldn't and to die in our place for us. But the redemption of sinners is not the end of the story because God intended from the very beginning to restore everything, not just mankind. And so restoration is the end of the story. Restoration is the story of consummation. It's the story of completion. Restoration is God restoring everything to the state and the condition that he originally intended. And the restoration and consummation is the subject of these final two chapters in Revelation, which happen to be the last two chapters in the Bible itself. As I was planning this sermon series, especially the last few weeks, I was intending to complete our study of the book of Revelation prior to Easter, but alas, we will not. And if you've been paying attention to this study, and if you've been seeking to grasp the meaning of these passages all along as we've been walking through these various parts, you probably don't want me to truncate this study by moving too quickly through this last glorious part because this is where the good stuff is. 
And this stuff that we find in chapters 21 and 22 are the goal. The goal not just of the book of Revelation, but one could say even the goal of the Bible itself. For everything in Scripture points to what happens in these last two chapters of the book of Revelation. And so we've spent a lot of time trudging through the hard stuff, trudging through the tribulations and the judgments. Surely we can spend a few weeks talking about what we will enjoy as God's people forever. To fast forward through these passages which cover the eternal future would be like us fast forwarding through the first couple of chapters of Genesis which cover the eternal past. And so we won't. What we find here is some of the most encouraging passages in all of Scripture. And so we're going to take our time walking through it. We're going to take a break at Easter and we'll cover the resurrection because after all, that's what makes all of this possible. But then we'll return to our study of Revelation at least for a couple of weeks afterwards. So let's read this morning in chapter 21. We're going to be in the first eight verses and hear what John sees in this vision of a new heaven and a new earth. Church, this is God's word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without, without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray. Our Father, as we begin to peel back the curtain and look into the age to come. I must admit my woefully inadequate ability to adequately and appropriately describe for your people what that will be like. 
as we began to look at the words that you gave to the Apostle John as a glimpse into the eternal state, language fails to describe the glory and the beauty and the majesty of the age to come and what it will be like to live with you, Father, in your presence in the new creation. But Father, I pray that you would be with us as we seek to unpack all that we have, which is your word. And Father, we know that your word is perfect and it is exactly what we need in order for us to live for Jesus today. So God, would you attend to the reading of your word with your spirit? To give us not just greater head knowledge as to what this means, but that we might live in light of it today for your glory until your son returns and makes all this happen. We pray this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. The first eight verses that we find here in chapter 21 are a transition between the the scene of judgment that precedes it, and the scene of the eternal state which follows it. Last week, we ended a larger section of the book of Revelation, which included chapters 18 through 20, which was all about the judgment of evil. We saw the fall of Babylon. We saw the destruction of the beast and the false prophet and the armies of the nations that were gathered against the Lord at Armageddon. We saw the final and complete destruction of the dragon, Satan. And at the end of last week, we saw the judgment of sinners, the judgment of those who rejected the gospel and their punishment in the lake of fire. And this morning's passage is a transition between the judgment and the eternal state, the consummation. And these eight verses of chapter 21 are really an introductory. They are a summary of the passages which follow in the remainder of this chapter and the first few verses of chapter 5. Here in these eight verses, the new creation is just introduced to us. And then greater detail is given in the subsequent passages about the new city, the new temple, and the new garden in the eternal state. If you're taking notes, we can divide these eight verses into three sections. First of all, in verses one and two, we're told what John sees in the new heaven and the new earth. And then in verses three and four, John hears a voice from heaven that tells him more about this and about the presence of God with man. And then in verses five through eight, God himself speaks from the throne and gives a sevenfold speech confirming his finished work in the new creation. So let's look first at verses 1 and 2. They are John's description of what he sees in the new heaven and the new earth. So what does he see? Verses 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What a sight. Think about that. 
What a sight that must have been for John. A new heaven and a new earth. A new creation. And the newness of this creation is contrasted with the oldness of the previous creation because we're told that it had passed away. Back in verse 11 of chapter 20 that we looked at last week, we were told that earth and sky had fled from the presence of the one who sat on the throne, the great white throne, and that no place was found for them. Earth and sky had fled away. And that was a very figurative way of saying exactly what John says here, that the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And now there was a new heaven and a new earth. What we need to see, first of all, from this is that, is that this is a fulfillment of prophecy. This is a fulfillment of God through the prophets in the Old Testament. We read from Isaiah 65 earlier where God says through the prophet, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Later in the next chapter, Isaiah 66, verse 22 he says, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. So the prophets of old anticipated this through God. They anticipated a new heaven and a new earth. And so this is fulfillment of what God planned all along. But what will this new creation be like? Well, first, John tells us what he sees in verses 1 and 2, and then in three, verses 3 and 4, John tells us what the angel says about the new creation. So first, what does John see? Well, he sees that the new creation is not the same as the old. He says in verse 1 that the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, meaning they had departed that they were gone. Now, I don't think that this necessarily means that the new creation bears no resemblance to the old creation or the current creation. And perhaps it doesn't even mean that the old is, it ceases to exist. In fact, down in verse 5, God declares, I am making all things, what? New. Now, does that mean that the old is transformed and made new? Or does that mean that the old is gone and the new has come? Where is there continuity with what was before and discontinuity with what was before? And I don't personally think that we can say with any degree of certainty exactly where the difference lies between those two things. I think in Paul's letters, we can certainly surmise that there's a link between the new creation and the resurrection. And so perhaps we can think about the link between our current creation and what the new creation will be like in the new heaven and the new earth being similar to the link that exists between our current bodies and our resurrected bodies. And we know that there is both continuity and discontinuity. There's a connection between them. We know that Jesus' disciples recognized him after his resurrection, but it was a radically new body that he was in. 
radically different from the old, though it bears connection to what came before. So at least in this case, we can say at minimum that the old creation was temporary, but the new creation will be forever. The old creation passed away, but the new creation, as God told Isaiah, will remain before the Lord forever. It will never pass away. What else does John see? Well, at the end of verse 1, he says that the sea was no more. I don't think that just means that there wasn't an ocean. In fact, in the book of Revelation, as we've seen, and for that matter, throughout apocalyptic literature in general, the sea is symbolic of chaos and evil. And so I I think what what we're to take this to mean is that there will be no more evil. There will be no more evil. Certainly the angel will tell us in verses 3 and 4 more about what that's going to mean for our existence in the new creation. But at least for now, we can, we're can we reminded that the great deceiver, the, the great dragon, Satan, he was thrown into the lake of fire in chapter 20. And so no longer will he deceive the nations. No longer will he seek to rob God of his glory in the new creation. The enemies of God are vanquished forever. Never again will a serpent tempt man with sin. Imagine that. A world devoid of any temptation whatsoever. There will be no more evil. But John also sees a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. There in verse 2. Now what is this new creation, uh, this new Jerusalem? And, and to what degree is it distinct from the new heaven and the new earth? Well, we're not told much about the new Jerusalem here in these introductory verses in verses 1 through 8. Uh, the angel will tell us much, much more in um, the subsequent verses in verses 9 through 21 that we'll cover next week. But the new Jerusalem is just introduced to us here in these verses. But according to my reading of the text. This new Jerusalem appears to be something that is distinct from the new heaven and the new earth. It's something that's added to the new heaven and the earth. John says in verse 1 that he saw the new heaven and the earth because the first heaven, the first earth had passed away and then he sees a new Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. And he tells us that it is both a city that comes down from heaven But it's also a bride that's prepared for her husband. And so it's both a place and a people. It's a city and a bride. Now several scriptures talk about a heavenly Jerusalem, both in the Old Testament and the New. A heavenly Jerusalem that is contrasted with a physical Jerusalem. A spiritual city, a heavenly city that's contrasted with the physical city of Jerusalem, the earthly city. And this heavenly city, this heavenly Jerusalem is the temporary abode of the saints that have gone on to be with the Lord. And it's where they are. It's spiritual and it's inhabited by the spirits of those who have died in Christ. But John is speaking here about a physical city that descends out of heaven. And in fact, in the verses that we'll cover next week, 
where it goes into the New Jerusalem in greater detail, we're even given physical dimensions of this city. And so this is a physical city here that is inhabited not by spirits, but by physical bodies. Because remember, the resurrection of believers has already occurred at this point in time. And so all of this leads me to believe that somehow, some way, and I can't adequately describe how, but the new Jerusalem is somehow connected to the redeemed in Christ of all the ages in the eternal state. Whether this is the permanent eternal residence of all believers, I can't say with any degree of certainty, but it's somehow connected to the church and the people of God in the eternal state in the age to come. But as a city, the new Jerusalem is a, is a stark contrast to another city that was described for us earlier in the book of Revelation, the great city Babylon that was described for us. And so for those who by God's grace did not succumb to the influences of Babylon now take up residence somehow in this new city, in the new Jerusalem. And so it's somehow connected, I believe, to the church. After all, we know that in Paul's letters, he likes to refer to the church as the bride of Christ, right? And here the new Jerusalem is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And that just sounds to me like the dwelling place of the redeemed. But I love that language there, that she is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. On the day of her wedding, a bride spends hours and hours and hours preparing herself for her groom. And she has other people coming alongside her to help her with her hair and her makeup and her dress and her veil and whatever else she adorns herself with for her groom. I don't know what all it takes for a bride to be prepared for her groom, but I do know the end result, and the end result is usually tears of joy and delight in the eyes of the groom. And friend, our preparation as the bride of Christ, our groom, is taking place right now. This is where we are being adorned for our husband, our groom, Christ. As we are growing in Christ and learning to follow Jesus, we are being adorned for our groom. Every trial that he leads us through is preparing us for our groom. And one day we'll be ready. One day we'll be prepared, adorned as a bride for her husband. So that's what John sees here in this vision. He sees a, a, a new creation, a new heaven and the earth. The old has passed away. He sees that all evil is gone. There's no evil there at all. And he sees a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven that is both a city and a people. But then John hears a loud voice coming from the throne. 
And I don't think this is God's voice. I think this is one of the angels' voice here. But he, he articulates to us the heart intention of our God. And as I read verses 3 and 4, church, I just want you to hear the heart intention of our God towards the redeemed in the new creation. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Two things we learn from this voice in heaven, and one leads to the other. The first that we learn is that God will be with his people and then consequently, that leads to the second thing that we learn from this voice from heaven, and that is that all suffering will be gone. God will dwell with man. And that's not just something that we want. We need to wrap our minds and our affections around the reality that this is what God wants. And this is always what he has wanted, to dwell with the pinnacle of his creation, those made in his image, mankind. In the Old Testament, God first dwelled with man in the garden, and it was an experience of perfect peace and harmony. But Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and they were expelled from his presence, forever marred by the stain of their sin. And so later, God directed the Israelites to erect a temple, or excuse me, a tabernacle in the wilderness. Why? Because God wanted to be with his people. That tabernacle was also referred to as the tent of meeting. Because it's where God met with his people, but only through an intermediary, through Moses and Aaron and Aaron's sons as intermediaries, because there was a, a, a gap, a, a, a gulf that was caused by sin that existed between God and man. And so it required an intermediary for man to dwell with God and for God to be with man. And then when he led them into the promised land, they built the city of Jerusalem. God directed them to do away with the tabernacle and to build a more permanent dwelling for himself. And of course, that dwelling was the temple. And inside that temple was the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go and make sacrifices for himself and for the people, again, as an intermediary. But why did we have the temple? Because God desired to dwell with his people, to receive their worship, and to enjoy fellowship with them. When Jesus walked the earth during his earthly ministry, 
he referred to himself as the temple. And at least for a time, God dwelt among man through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. But that temple had to be destroyed. He came to die on a cross for the sins of man. And through his crucifixion and resurrection, sinful men and women like us could be reconciled back to God through repentance of sins and faith in Jesus Christ. And why was that? Because God wanted to be with man and his people. And so the good news is we can be with God today. Because of what Christ accomplished for us at Calvary. We can be in his very presence because of his sinless life and his substitutionary death and resurrection. But our walk with God in this life, we know, is still marred by sin. It's still hindered by our weaknesses and disrupted by our wrong motives our idolatrous hearts, our proclivity to temptation and distraction. But when sin and evil are finally vanquished, when Jesus returns again, God will dwell with us once more and it will be perfect just as he originally intended in the garden. He will dwell with us and we will be his people God himself will be with us, and he will be our God. And by the way, that word people there in verse 3, that they will be his people, that word is in the plural. And it reminds to us, it reminds us of that multicultural, multi-ethnic picture of the throne room in heaven, the one that we have seen in the book of Revelation already, that Revelation 7 throne room scene where there will be people from every tribe, every language, every tongue, every people group in heaven. This is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that Abraham, through you, I will bless all the families of the earth. What an amazing thought that God wants to be with us, that he desires, the God of the universe desires to be with us and what great lengths he has gone to to affect that reality God wants to be with you I wonder how that truth could transform our perspective of our own devotional mindset to consider that the God of the universe wants to be with me even more than I desire to be with him. Perhaps that time in his word, that time in his prayer each day, is not so much for me as it is for him to worship and honor him, where he can receive worship from me and enjoy a relationship with me. God wants to be with his people and because he will be one day he will be with us that's the promise and because that's true 
Listen again to verse 4 to what the presence, being in the presence of God will be like for us. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. All suffering will be gone. I think it's interesting that when the angel seeks to describe what life will be like in the new creation, words escape him to describe what it will be like, and so he resorts to describing what it will not be like. These are all in the negative here. It's almost as if human language is inadequate to describe the glorious experience and beauty of what life will be like in the new creation that we, will, that we who are in Christ will experience and what it all will include. And so he has to describe what it won't include. When was the last time you cried? And I don't mean tears of joy or tears of laughter. I mean tears of sadness, tears of grief, tears of depression, tears of anguish when was the last time you cried whatever it was whether it was the death of a loved one or a broken heart or a troubled spirit a physical ailment an emotional trauma a spiritual discouragement or depression no matter what the reasons for your tears in the new creation, they will be no more. All suffering will be gone. Friend, we know that our sovereign God has ordained suffering for us in this life. And that it always has a a sanctifying and purifying effect on our souls. And that's because we're being prepared as a bride. We're being adorned with the sanctifying effects of trials and suffering while in this life. But one day, we will have been prepared. We will have been adorned and there will be no more need for suffering of any kind what an eternity awaits us as followers of christ so we have what john sees in the first two verses we have what the angel tells us about the new creation in verses three and four and now in verses five through eight we have god himself who speaks to us speaks to john speaks to us in this sevenfold speech from the throne. And in this speech, God gives us, as believers in Christ, both assurances and warning. Verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's the first point in our speech. God is making all things new. And this, again, is fulfillment of his promises to Isaiah and the other prophets, he promises to make all things new. And by the way, note the verb tense there. I am making. It's in the present tense. 
not past tense. He doesn't say, I have made all things new. I am making, he says to John in the first century, as he peers across the precipice of the eternal state. He says, John, I am making all things new. He says to the church of the first century, first century church, in your persecution, I am making all things new. He says to the church in the 21st century, in a world that is growingly hostile to the gospel, God says, I am making all things new. It's present tense. God is doing this and is continuing to do this even now. He's at work restraining evil, sanctifying our souls, refining our character, persevering our spirits, and adorning his bride. And all of this is him making all things new. He's doing that now. Secondly, God directs John to write this down. It's that important. He says in verse 5b, write this down. This referring, I don't think just to, just to this part of Revelation, but all of the Revelation. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And we're reminded of what John tells us at the outset of Revelation. In the third verse of the first chapter, John says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. God tells John, these things that you have been shown need to be recorded. They need to be written down. They need to be read. They need to be listened to. They need to be obeyed and followed because they are trustworthy and they are true. Thirdly, he says, it is done. It is done. Reminds us of a similar statement his son stated at the cross, right? It is finished. But now at the, at the end of the universe, God himself says from the throne of the universe, it's done. In other words, all of the prophecies about what must take place have been accomplished. All, all of the, the, the promises have been kept. Nothing else remains yet unfulfilled. It's done. It's all done. The scroll has been handed to the Lamb, and the Lamb has opened it, and it has been read, and it has been fully executed. It's all done at this point. Fourth, God identifies himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He tells John that he controls both ends of eternity, the very beginning and the very end. And that he is sovereign over everything that lies in between. It's the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. Fifth, God gives the water of life to the thirsty. He says at the end of verse 6, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. This too, excuse me, this too has uh, Old Testament allusions in the background. Uh, promises to the Israelites through the prophets that... He would lead them to springs of water, to drink from the springs of water. In several places throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, he invites the thirsty of Israel to come to him that he might lead them to drink and be satisfied with water. But doesn't, doesn't this also remind us of the words of Jesus 
in John 4 when he meets with the woman at the well from Samaria and he offers to her living water. There Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water from this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Of course, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. Tom Schreiner writes this concerning the thirst that is quenched by the Lord when we come to him in spiritual hunger. He says, the joys of knowing God and having him dwell in one's midst belong to those who are thirsty, who long to be satisfied with God and are tired of relying on themselves and their own good works. God freely quenches the spiritual thirst and longing of human beings. The water of life is a gift that comes with the asking. This is the water of life that by the grace of God I drank from as a 17-year-old kid in high school. And one day you and I and all those who belong to Christ by grace through faith in Jesus will drink deeply from the spring of the water of life forever. But here's the thing. We can drink from this well even today. Even now, when our spirits are thirsty, why is it, why is it, friend, that we so often turn to the wells of this world that don't satisfy when this same living water is available to us? Let us drink from the well of Christ, the well of his word, that we might be satisfied with nothing else. Sixth, God assures the believer that this will be their heritage. Verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is a recurring theme that we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, that God promises reward and blessing to the one who conquers, the one who overcomes. And as we've encountered each of those themes, uh, each of the instances of that theme, uh, we've reminded ourselves over and over of what Paul tells the Romans in Romans 8, verse 37, that in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, through Christ who loved us. And so our conquering is not in our own effort. Our conquering is not in us trying harder, but in surrendering more and more to the abiding presence of God in us through the person of Jesus Christ who resides in us through faith. He is our conqueror. And in him we are more than conquerors. Abiding in Christ, we will conquer every temptation. Abiding and surrendering to Christ, we can conquer every enemy that sets itself up against the church. Friend, abiding in Christ, we can conquer every fear, every anxious thought, every season of depression every trial and every hardship. And what does God promise to those who so conquer? Verse 7, again, 
The one who conquers will have this heritage, the heritage of the new creation and the heritage of the presence of God himself. I will be his God and he will be my son. What a glorious assurance to the believer that this is what awaits them. But then seventh and finally in this speech, God also warns the believer. God warns believers to persevere in faithfulness. Those who fail to conquer and instead give themselves over to evil will inherit something else. Look at verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It's not as though any one of these sins would automatically exclude someone from eternal life, but that those who give themselves to these, these sins, and not just these sins, this list is not meant to be exhaustive, but rather representative, but those who give themselves to these sins, instead of repenting of them and turning to Christ for forgiveness from them, will not inherit eternal life. God tells us it is cowardice that folds under the pressure of the world and conforms to the world and follows the beast and joins rank with Babylon the prostitute. That is cowardice. But it is courage that risks the judgment from the world in order to follow the Redeemer. He inherits a heritage of eternal life. The cowardly may escape the judgment from the world, but they will inherit a judgment far worse. And so this speech from God in verses 5 through 8 contains both assurances and warning. And as followers of Christ who live in the 21st century, seeking to be faithful for him today, we need both of those things. We need both assurances and warning. Commentator Scott Duvall says this, two key messages in Revelation, assurance and warning, serve to keep us walking true, resting in grace, and striving for holiness. The message of assurance will bring comfort when we struggle with soul-crushing condemnation. And the message of warning will spur us on when we have become complacent. So where are you this morning? Are you struggling under soul-crushing condemnation? Or maybe have you become complacent in fighting against indwelling sin? To the former, these words from the throne of God bring assurance that if we profess faith in Christ alone as our only hope to be rescued from what we deserve, then the promise of Paul is for us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Don't labor under that soul-crushing condemnation because if you know Jesus, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. None. But to the latter... Those who have become complacent and fighting against sin, 
these words of God bring a dire warning and we ought not seek to minimize the sharpness of this warning. It's a warning to repent of those sins and to trust in Christ to help us fight against them. So in summary this morning, I see three takeaways from this passage for us to wrestle with and be encouraged by. Number one, God desires to be with us. God wants to be with us. He wants to be with you. So much so that he will ensure that one day it will happen. And he will dwell with his people forever in perfect harmony and peace. God desires to be with us. Imagine that for you. That the God of the universe desires, wants to be with you. How might that impact your walk with Christ this week? How might that transform your devotional life this week? as you seek to spend time with the Lord in Bible study and reading and prayer. Second, we simply, as finite human beings, cannot and apparently are not intended to be able to comprehend what life will be like in the new creation. Again, human language fails at this point to adequately describe what it will be like. No matter how glorious we imagine the life and the new creation to be the reality of it will be far greater and so we just can't wrap our mind around it we can't comprehend it no matter how deeply we study revelation and other passages that talk about what comes next no matter how much we know that and memorize that and understand the true meaning of it we will still still be as paul says we will still be seen dimly as in a mirror. But one day we'll see face to face. He says, now we know in part, then we shall know fully. And the greatest part of it all, the supreme experience of the age to come, is not that the streets will be paved with gold, but that we will be in the presence of our God. Third, be conquerors not cowards as we continue to live in a world that is increasingly hostile to the gospel we will more and more and more need to make a choice will we live for god and endure judgment from the world or will we live for the world and endure judgment from god And the Lord is exhorting John here, and by way of consequence, us as well in this passage, to be conquerors, not cowards. Daily surrender to Christ in you so that you will not surrender to the world. Let's pray.